Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest is Jamie Raskin, the congressman from Maryland who was on the January 6th committee and led the impeachment against Donald Trump a year ago. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Get, we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to this week's sponsors, Blinkist, HelloFresh, and Stamps.com in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It makes this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us. Remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, James Carver, you know, I've never had much respect for Time Magazine's Person of the Year, including this year's pick of Elon Musk, but I'd vote for the New Yorker's selection, who's our guest today, Jamie Raskin. The Maryland congressman, the lead house manager on the Trump impeachment a year ago, uh, and the author of a compelling new memoir, Unthinkable. Congressman, thank you for being with us. Uh, a year ago, you suffered indescribable pain, losing your beloved son, Tommy. Then you and your daughter and son-in-law were in the house chamber when the Trump-inspired violent mob stormed the Capitol, and then you led the impeachment uh, a week or two later. This book is really important history. Has it also been a personal catharsis for you? Writing the book was very much a personal catharsis for me. Um, I had a sleepless year, Al, so I, you know, I was totally insomniac. I couldn't sleep, so I figured I could either spend the rest of my life obsessed with this 50-day period between um, December 31, 2020, and Valentine's Day when we, in that period, we, we lost Tommy, we buried Tommy, the violent insurrection took place. A week later, the impeachment took place. Speaker Pelosi asked me to be the lead manager we got ready for the trial, and then we had the trial, and all of that happened before Valentine's Day. And I figured either I could be obsessed with that period and relive it for the rest of my life, or I could try to write about it now, record the details the best that I could, and try to un understand it and make sense of it the best that I can and share it with people. Um, and that's what I did. And um, so writing it was cathartic. It was therapeutic. But I have to tell you, I did the uh, audio version of the book, and that was wrenching and uh, a very difficult, trying experience to speak my way through it. I can only imagine. You write that Tommy is your inspiration. And as you take on another grave task now on the January 6th Select Committee, how does that inspiration guide you? You know, what do you think about, what do you think about him as you're doing this? Well, I mean, as I said at the trial, all three of my kids are just better people than me. They've got my wife in them. And uh, Tommy was just a great humanitarian. Um, he was a moral philosopher. He was a political philosopher. He was a human rights activist. He was an animal rights activist. He wanted more out of democracy, not less out of democracy. He didn't want to carve out the heart of democracy and leave a shell for a bunch of authoritarian maniacs and uh, kleptocrats who treat the government as an opportunity for private self-enrichment and money-making. He didn't want any of that. He wanted the government to be an instrument of the common good, the common man, the common woman, uh, people all over the country, and to be an instrument for democracy and human rights on Earth. So... 
I keep that in mind. You know, I, I can have a tendency to get too legalistic and too constitutional about things. But for Tommy, even though he was a second-year student in Harvard Law School, he understood that the law is only as good as the law serving justice and freedom of human beings. Well, uh, once you know, speaking for James, our hearts are, go out to you and your family uh, this week and other weeks. Uh, going to the select committee, the closest parallel, I, I, I think, is not any in the impeachments, but the 1973 Sam Irvin Watergate committee. You were, you were just a kid, a young student, probably at Georgetown Day, but I'm so damn old, Congressman, I covered that committee. Uh, this is about Trump. That was about Nixon. Uh, but what the Irvin Committee produced, which led to multiple prosecutions, were witnesses who were in the room when crimes occurred. Now, you have high-profile resistors this time, Bannon, Meadows, but you said 98% of the people you're seeking um, uh, testimony from are cooperating. Are you going to produce people who were in the room? Well, I think we have. I mean, there were different people in different rooms at different points, and a bunch of those people have testified. The overwhelming majority of people are coming to give us the information freely. One, because they understand it's their legal duty. Two, because they understand it's their civic honor to do it. I mean, real patriots would say our government was under attack. Somebody tried to overthrow our constitutional process. Somebody tried to destroy our presidential election. And yes, I'm going to give you all of the information I've got. So we are getting people in the room. As you say, it gets tougher the closer we get to Donald Trump. But let me just take issue with one thing, Al. It's really not about one guy. I mean, the Senate trial was much more about one guy. It was one charge, incitement to violent insurrection, with one guy, Donald Trump, and about whether or not he should be removed from office and ultimately disqualified from serving again because he's a danger to the union. But right now, our investigation is not just into one guy, but it's into an entire movement, which has taken on, which has taken on very important fascistic features to it. It's about that movement. It's also about what are the weaknesses in our constitutional and statutory election structure that allowed them to get so close to executing a coup in the United States. And what are the systems of propaganda that took place through the social media that have allowed millions of people to believe in absolute nonsense, to be swallowing lies as if uh, they are members of a totalitarian movement? Because that's really uh, where the whole Trump operation is going. We've got a, a whole political party that's operating outside of the constitutional order. So it does go way beyond one guy. That guy's obviously at the center of it. But long after Donald Trump's gone, we're going to be dealing with the ramifications of what's happened here. You know, people understand he used the domestic violence extremist groups. He used the insurrectionists, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, the Aryan Nations, the militia groups, the First Amendment Praetorian. He used all those people, but they used him too. Because when they gathered in August of 2017 in Charlottesville, there were just 500 of them. And when they got to D.C., for January the 6th, there were thousands of them, and they were the frontline stormtrooper vanguard of a march of 40 or 50,000 people that almost knocked over the U.S. government. So he helped to inflate their power. And if Donald Trump had a change of heart and went and joined a monetary or somebody else's religious cult today, we'd still be dealing with all of these forces that he's unleashed in America. Uh, good, good point. Well taken. James, 
Oh, oh, thank, thank you, sir, for coming on here. And you know, you went through a tragedy, and you dealt with it in your book. And millions and millions of Americans go through tragedies, and I, I know that you hope, and I hope that your book will, will help them in some way get through this as you got through it. I think it's a, it's a profoundly, not just a cathartic work for you, but I think it's a profoundly important book for the rest of the country because these kinds of tragedies are suffered by. Many people uh, across this country, but so thank you for saying that, James. That means a lot to me. Thank you. So maybe I read too many Jack Reacher books and look at too many old dragnets, you know. But always the question is the motive. All right, will we have a good idea? Do you believe at the conclusion of of, of this investigation as to what the motive of of Trump people in the White House would? Do you think we're going to know what their motive? What did they expect? Are we going to are we going to learn that at the end of the day? Well, it's a great point. Um, you know, I have felt from the beginning that uh, the Trump administration and the Trump operation and entourage uh, was a money making operation, uh, and that Donald Trump has very little interest in the uses of government for the things that we traditionally think that government's about. I mean, take somebody like Joe Biden. For him, uh, government is about infrastructure. You know, that was the first thing he put on the table. And we got this trillion dollar plan for the roads and the bridges and the highways and universal broadband. Donald Trump would talk about that occasionally because somebody told him to. They never had a plan for it, much less vote on it, much less create a bipartisan coalition to get it done. So, Look, this is a guy who declared at the very beginning of his administration that he was going to stay in business. He said he would turn over day-to-day operation to his kids, but that was an extraordinary thing. And, you know, from having read the book, you will know that I fault us, the Democrats, for not putting the emoluments clauses front and center in that original impeachment because they were, they were cleaning up with millions of dollars um, from foreign governments in absolute violation of Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 of the Constitution, which says that nobody in federal office, including presidents, can receive presents, emoluments, which just means payments, offices, or titles from any prince, king, or foreign state without the permission of Congress. And they were doing that. And he was also raking in millions of dollars from the federal government itself um, as yeah, all of these government agencies would go and stay at the hotels and go and stay at the golf courses. And it got to the point, remember, when he wanted to have the G7 at one of his golf courses in Florida. And it was so extreme that they had to drop that. But he, in the meantime, he'd already taken millions of dollars. And in his defense, he said, well, I don't accept my salary. That's the only thing he's allowed to accept under the U.S. Constitution. It says so in the domestic emoluments clause. The president shall receive no money from the federal government other than that. But in any event... That, I think, explained why he bent over backwards to try to stay in office to the point of uh, inciting uh, these extremist white nationalist groups and to the point of trying to overthrow Joe Biden's majority in the Electoral College by uh, in trying to entice election officials like uh, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia to commit election fraud when he told him, all I'm looking for is 11,781 votes. All of it I believe, was motivated by his wanting to maintain his hold on power in order to keep the grift going, in order to keep the money operation going. Now, there are other theories out there. There are other people who say, look, fascism doesn't really need a motive. 
Madeleine Albright says fascism doesn't even have an, a fixed ideological content. Fascism is just a strategy for certain groups to take power and then maintain their hold on power. And so there are groupings in the country, undoubtedly, who want power for specific ideological purposes and specific political purposes. And it may have been some combination of those things. Ultimately, as you know, the law doesn't require a demonstration of motive. It helps to understand the situation. But really what you need is just a demonstration of intent. And he intended to overthrow the 2020 presidential election and to seize the presidency even though he lost it. All right. So I, I, I understand all that. So how did they think that this was going to end up? They, they obviously knew these people were coming. They obviously did everything they could to gas them up. They had the operation in the Willard. They had White House. They had the people there. What was their hope that was going to happen? We, we know that. How, how does this fit in? Then others have been a herd of criminals attacking well, the Capitol. What, was, yeah. what do you think we're going to know what the desired result was? Well, right now, James, uh, we don't see one clean plan. I mean, there were a bunch of memos and a bunch of letters, and everybody had their own plan, okay? So they, they were kind of a gang that couldn't shoot straight. But let me tell you what my best estimate has been for a while now about what took place. There were three rings of activity. The outer ring was the ring of the protest, the so-called wild protest that Donald Trump had been uh, recruiting his followers to come for on the social media. That protest became a riot, okay? In the second ring, in the middle, we found the insurrectionists. And here were the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters and around a dozen organized uh, violent militia groups and extremist groups that were literally training for violence on January 6th, and they had maps and they had diagrams and they were coordinated and they were in touch on cell phones and walkie-talkies. I don't quite know why they needed walkie-talkies since they had cell phones, but in any event, um, they were in touch with each other. That was organized. And that was the front line of the march that began to smash our windows and attack our police officers to beat the daylights out of the Capitol cops, the Metropolitan Police Department officers, the Montgomery County cops who were down there. A lot of officers were there in the thick of that medieval battle. We had officers who spent time in Afghanistan and in Iraq in combat who said they had never seen anything like the violence that was unleashed against them on that day when they were being hit over the head with steel pipes, Confederate battle flags, Trump flags, fire extinguishers sprayed in the face with toxic agents and so on. And many of them are still suffering from it today. Okay, but at the very inner ring, the inner core, we found the coup, the attempted coup. Now, it's a weird word in American political parlance because we don't have experience with coups. Um, and we think of a coup as something taking place against a president, but this coup was organized by the president against the vice president and against the Congress. So James asks, what was the plan? Here's the best I can make for what their plan was as of today. The plan was first to try to get Republican legislatures to nullify popular election results and just substitute in Trump electoral slates. And when that failed in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and a number of other states, they turned to the strategy of trying to get Republican-friendly election officials to nullify 
the uh, Biden majorities and to find 11,781 votes in Georgia or tens of thousands of votes in another state and here and there. When all of that failed because these people did their jobs and they were constitutional patriots, um, when all of that failed, all of the focus was on Vice President Mike Pence. If they could just get Pence to uh, invoke some vague statements by the DOJ that they were trying to get justice to say that there was fraud in the air or there was corruption in the air, if they could get Pence to ignore the 62 federal and state court cases that Donald Trump lost, even in eight courtrooms where Donald Trump judges were sitting, if they could get Pence to reject electoral college votes from Georgia, Arizona, and Pennsylvania, it would have lowered Joe Biden's electoral college vote total from 306 to below 270. Now, at that point, under the 12th Amendment of the Constitution, the contest goes immediately, immediately is in the Constitution, to the House of Representatives for a so-called contingent election. Now, you ask, why would Donald Trump want to try to get the election kicked into the House of Representatives? Well, under the terms of the 12th Amendment, we don't vote in such a contingent election on the basis of one member, one vote. We vote on the basis of one state, one vote. And after the elections, they had 27 state delegations they controlled. We had 22. Pennsylvania was split right down the middle. It was a tie. So even if the at-large rep from Wyoming, the great Liz Cheney, had defected from the GOP coalition, as I think she would have, they still would have had 26 states in their column. And they were prepared to run it like the Republican National Convention to do a roll call uh, with Kevin McCarthy, even if we were going to try to stop the proceedings and say that the vice president's unilateral uh, revoking of electoral college votes was unconstitutional. They would have tried to proceed with that immediate election. Um, they would have declared Donald Trump president. And at that point, uh, according to the plans of Michael Flynn, Trump would have been prepared to invoke the Insurrection Act and to declare something like martial law in the United States of America to call in the National Guard so he could be the savior and put down the violence and the insurrection that he had unleashed against us. I think that was the plan. Well, I, I, congratulations. And, I, 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 you know, I'm anxious. I saw uh, Congressman Schiff on television last night. And he said he expected public testimony to begin in, in, in a few weeks. Do you think we'll see public testimony by the end of this month? But I had not heard that new timetable. I was looking at February, but if it's in January, uh, right, right. all the better. We're, we're making but We're not that far off. I, I mean, it, it, we're not for no, it's, it's not far big. off. And, I, you know, I think a lot of us, including me, want the report to be out uh, by the summertime. Boy, I, I, I think so, too. I mean, it, it, the, the work that y'all doing is, is so critical, and there's so much that we don't know. And, it's just, you know, the whole operation, the Willard, the Green Bay sweep, I mean, there's all kinds of things. And I, I, I have confidence that y'all have some pretty good answers for us by the summer. Let me, really let me go back, uh, Congressman, to, to the Insurrection Act. Mark Meadows' memo said the National Guard would be there to, quote, protect the Trump people. Who do you think he was wanting, envisioning protecting the Trump people from? Weren't they really envisioning some kind of a counter demonstration and, and, a, and a, a terrible, violent riot, which would enable Trump to then invoke the Insurrection Act? 
Well, they were certainly hoping for one, uh, and they were willing to conjure one up. I mean, you know, there's footage of Proud Boys out in the streets saying, um, uh, Antifa, where are you? You know, they... And they, of course, are always imagining that they see Antifa, which is why they beat up a lot of uh, people who have nothing to do with Antifa or any other organization. Um, That's truly a fascist tactic, and they were willing to engage in that. And there were obviously people very high up in the military who were afraid that Donald Trump was going to stage this kind of provocation as the justification for him using the military on his side. And a a nice dress rehearsal for that took place on June 1st when uh, Trump and William Barr, who was then still under Trump's spell, uh, unleashed a police riot in Lafayette Square against a lot of Black Lives Matter protesters, including a lot of my constituents that day. And on horseback and uh, with um, tear gas or tear gas-like concoctions uh, unleashed real violence on people in the street in order to clear that pathway for him to go over to the St. John's Episcopal Church and wave somebody else's Bible over his head. But that's what that Meadows memo must have meant, protect the Trump people, protect him from whom? And it just seems to yeah. me there's only only one possible answer to that, which is, you know, a really alarming one. But uh, Yeah, it was protect them from our uh, image or our conjuring up of an enemy. I, yeah, we, our, ho- our hope for enemy. You you have uh, requested testimony from a couple Trump enablers who are members of the House, uh, Scott Perry, Jim Jordan. They seem to be resisting. Are there other members uh, of Congress who you will want to hear from? Um, but I believe so. I, I don't think I'm in a position to name anybody, but there were a number of members of Congress who were involved in uh, both the coup, as I described it, and in the insurrection. Uh, and interacting really in all three rings of activity on that day. And so they would they might be called to testify as Jordan and Perry have been. Well, we've got the power to do it under Article 1 of the Constitution where we define right. the rules of our own proceedings. We maintain disciplinary authority over all of our own members, whether it's censure, admonishment, expulsion, or whatever it might be. And in fact, the speech and debate clause says that uh, members shall not be uh, questioned or prosecuted for things that we say or do as part of our official duties outside of Congress itself, clearly implying that Congress does have the authority to obtain people's testimony. And that's something, of course, we do as a matter of course every day in the Ethics Committee. James? So, so Congressman, I look at this first and foremost as a massive criminal act, all right? This is just a, a, a massive crime at its core, as I recall from my days in law school, which admittedly a long time ago and I hadn't brushed up, if you case the joint, you're just as guilty as the shooter. All right? If, if, if there's a bank robbery and I'm the lookout or I, I give them the design or I tell them what time they change shifts and somebody gets shot, I'm, I'm part of the whole deal. If there's a conspiracy, yes. Right. But, but yes. You know, if, if, if I give people diagrams or, or charts or, or anything like that. I mean, I, as I recall, a felony murder or something like that, but you, you, you're all part of the same thing. Is there some possibility that we find out that, that there were a, a lot of people that were part of what I believe to be, a, yet is a, unproven, admittedly, a massive criminal act? Well, this is why we've got the Department of Justice, because we really need to diagram it out. And we're doing... 
our very best to try to figure it out. But there were um, the the question is basically is this a, a what we call a spoken wheel conspiracy, right? Where there's a center and then the spokes all go out in different right. directions, or is it a series of um, concentric circles or overlapping circles? It's hard exactly to imagine it, but we are trying to diagram it out and sketch it out. Um, were all of the orders coming from the top, from Donald Trump? Was it through Roger Stone and Steve Bannon, uh, through Mark Meadows? Who knows exactly? This is what we are trying to figure out. But your point is correct to the extent that there is a meeting of the minds and we're able to show that there's a meeting of the minds plus affirmative overt acts taken, that would indicate that there was indeed a conspiracy. And that would be something that the Department of Justice could prosecute and bring charges on. Right. So I'll turn it over now. Just one more question. A lawyer, obviously, an excellent one. Are there certain – does does not the Department of Justice have greater investigative powers than the congressional committee? Um, well, let's see. All of us have subpoena powers. Um, right. they, they have the power to prosecute people right. uh, under federal criminal law. Um, right. You know, we have inherent powers of contempt, but that's different, you know, for right. holding people in contempt to refuse to testify it, with us. So, yeah, the answer can, is yes. Yes. And and they can say, if you don't come forward, we're going to charge you, which is a part of a bet. You can't do that. They can. And, Correct. you know, I just make make the point that they have a, 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 a as you have a role to play here. They have a role to play here, I think, because in my own view is at the end of the day, this was one massive crime. Yeah. I mean, if you strip the politics out of it, and of course, that that attack, the coup and the insurrection could have come from people of any ideology. So if you try to remove the politics and ideology from it, James Carville is absolutely right. This was just a massive criminal event where hundreds, if not thousands of different crimes took place. But what we need the prosecutors for and the Department of Justice for is to place it into an overall context. And I understand that in organized crime prosecutions, they work their way up. They start with the lowest people in the totem pole and they get them to flip on the people the next level up and so on until you get to the top. So people are getting impatient because of that. But pretty soon, we need to see some action. I think uh, my beloved professor, Larry Tribe, has written about this recently. Um, This was the worst and most dangerous domestic political assault on Congress in American history. And as we argued at trial, this was the worst constitutional crime ever committed by a U.S. president and the most dangerous one. Um, So the magnitude of these events and the gravity of these events do indicate that the Department of Justice really needs to move quickly. Congressman, you have an incredibly busy week. You've been very generous with your time. Before you go, I just want to quote our our dear friend Walter Dellinger reminds that when you were testifying for same-sex marriage in the Maryland uh, uh, legislature, you told an objector, when you took your oath of office, you placed your hand in the Bible and swore to the Constitution. You did not place your hand on the Constitution and swear to uphold the Bible. I hope some of your Republican colleagues remember that uh, in the next uh, few weeks and months. Uh, Thank you so much. Yes, sir.
And for Thank all you, of you your... out there, I want to make sure, please read Unthinkable. It is a not only an incredibly important, but an extraordinarily moving book. Thank you very much, Thank, Jamie th Raskin. Thank you, sir. Thank you not Thank only you for your patriotism and, you, and, your, courage, and your, your courage. courage. You have great courage and great patriotism. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you, dear man. Hey, James, the new year is here, and that means it's the perfect time to up your game personally and professionally. So that 2022 is the best year yet, and that's why we recommend Blinkist. Blinkist is a powerful self-improvement tool that takes top nonfiction books and gives you key takeaways in text and audio explainers called Blinks that you can digest in just 15 minutes. There's no excuse not to try. You can use Blinks to tackle procrastination, get started on developing an idea or business, take your projects to the next level, or tackle titles like What Happened by Hillary Clinton, The Future of Capitalism by Paul Collier, and Promised Land by Barack Obama. What Happened is one of our favorite. It gives great insight into why uh, she lost such an important election and points the way to what we need to do to make sure it never happens again. You know, she's a brilliant leader who should learn, should have learned from you, right, James Carville? <laughs> well, uh, yes. In in all of the, the the thing about Blinkist is uh, there are a lot of things that they do that I I don't know, but to the extent of the stuff I know, it's just a really good product. And and I keep coming back to the same thing. I'd like to get these guys on the show. Who does this? I mean, who, you know, do they have an all? I'm just fascinated by how good they are at distilling this material. And, and just how they get to Genesis every time, and I, I just like to know how they get this done because it's 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 really fascinating. There's a lot of smart people in the world that have read a lot of books and with a, with a lot of ability to condense things and have concision. It's just unbelievable. But I'm just fascinated by people that are able to accumulate not just that depth of wisdom, but the breadth of the wisdom that they have accumulated. Well, and they blink thousands of titles in 27 categories. And if you like podcasts, and I know you all do out there, they've blinked those too with Shortcast. And it's, can you imagine us being on Shortcast, James? And it's all in one app right in your pocket. So you can learn anytime, anywhere with Blinkist. And right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash War Room to start your free seven-day trial. Get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash War Room. And you get 25% off and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash War Room or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, James Carville, we're not even close, I'm afraid, to being out of the woods on the Omicron variant. There are reports that it may be peaking in London and Denmark within a, a week or so, but it's surging in the rest of England. And Denmark doesn't expect to be back to a semblance of normalcy for maybe a couple months. It came here later, and it's spreading to more regions. Um, so we're not going to be out of it soon. And while the Biden administration deserves blame for dropping uh, the ball on testing, we are endangered by the continuing know-nothingness of right-wing Trump sycophants, particularly governors, who rail against private companies requiring employees to be vaccinated or tested and mask mandates. James, even with a less lethal variant, they are killing people. 
oh, of course they're, of course they're killing people. And they're, you know, they're, they're people dying, you know, wanting uh, the horse medication. I mean, there people that are dying screaming at, at medical professionals for wearing a mask. I, I, it's, just been a, it's just been a terribly, terribly disappointing thing. The only thing I'd say is it reaffirms the wisdom of the Bible the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. <laughs> you know, when you get when this thing hits, you know, it generally hits in New York, and then every the rest of the country gets there. Well, we're not in New York, and then all of a sudden, is exactly what this is doing, uh, and and it's coming down south, and it's, it's not going to be stopped down here until it peters itself out. We're just in, in for, depending on who you listen to, somewhere between two and six weeks of hell down here. Florida and Texas have a higher rate of incidents than New York uh, and a much higher rate than California. So the idea that, uh, you know, that uh, That's the, too stupid the so-called words. blue states, it's a it's a dumb argument. You know, it, it is it is considerably less deadly. But another impact that they're having, there are people being hospitalized because it's so contagious. And that, that's A, running up hospital costs a lot, Medicare, Medicaid costs. Uh, and, it's, and, and where there's overcrowding, it's preventing non-COVID patients from getting needed surgery or other treatments. Uh, the consequences are just far greater than a few dumb people who are getting sick because they weren't vaccinated. Absolutely. And, and by the way, unfortunately, people are still getting sick. People are having cancer, you know, they're having... Right. Other diseases, you know, having coronary artery disease, having strokes. I mean, all this stuff is it didn't stop for COVID, and the the stress on the medical system is just unbelievable. The burn rate. I mean, it, it's a single, it's it's a sinful, selfish act to not be vaccinated and not wear a mask. I'm sorry, it just is. And, and if anything that I learned going to Catholic school. And taking all these courses is these people might go to hell when they die because you're you, you are violating the first principle of Christianity is you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You have some convoluted opinion of your own self. And, you know, if, if, if you want to do something like that, if you want to sit in your chair and drink yourself to death, you have a perfect right to do that. You know, but th- this this is this is not just this is. Highly immoral behavior. I cannot stress that enough. These people lack a sense of morality. Yeah, they. And I, I really believe that. I'm not saying that to be a polemicist or to be a, a, a partisan Democrat or anything like that. It is a ultimate selfish act to not be vaccinated and not wear a mask. Yeah, it is. And I'll give you another test that's coming up on Friday. The Supreme Court is going to hear arguments about the Biden administration's proposal that. All uh, companies with 100 or more employees require vaccination or testing uh, and a separate uh, issue that requires hospital workers be vaccinated. Now, this is a court where there's a majority, five or six members, who clearly uh, are going to be very, very pro-life before, uh, before birth. Let's see if they're pro-life after birth. This is a matter of saving people's lives. Uh, and there is, uh, can you imagine any, there is no possible medical or religious uh, exception uh, or reservation about being tested, about being tested. I mean, what religious objection is there being tested? And as for hospital workers, can you imagine James going to a hospital where they have unvaccinated uh, people uh, working? Uh, it's just unthinkable. This is a big test for this Supreme Court. Well, 
look, people have, it, it, it is very possible to be a devoutly pro-life person and be a very, very good person. They would think that, that, that okay, I understand that. And, and, but you, that is, you're not, that's, it's not a menace to public health. All right, you have a you have a poly principle position. You should follow that position, and if you choose to 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 carry a a, a fetus to term, that's great. If if you don't, it, it, you may think it's a sin. It may I, I'm not I'm not a theologian, but it's only it, it's not a menace to public health. These people are a menace to health all across not just the country, the world. Anti-vaxxers uh, and the anti-mask mm-hmm. mandators, yeah. And anti-maskers. Right, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it is a, again, I, I view it through the prism of a, a deep and profound moral issue. Well, you're right, and I also view the Supreme Court's decision that's going to be forthcoming after that Friday argument God, uh, as, a, as a moral are not, as well as a You're leader. not going to believe what the law in America is going to look like when we do the January 6th show. Of 2023. Yeah, I and agree. people don't have any idea what's coming. We, we unfortunately will have to return to this COVID issue uh, in the weeks and months ahead. Hey, the new year is a great time to focus on what's most important to your life, like nutrition, finances, and your health. And whether it's saving money by ordering less takeout, learning to cook, or prioritizing your wellness, HelloFresh is a delicious meal service here to help with endless options to make cooking at home simple and enjoyable. HelloFresh cuts back on time spent in the kitchen so you can spend it on other resolutions with meals ready in around 30 minutes or less. Plus, they're quick and easy meals, including the 20-minute recipes and low prep and easy cleanup options provide an even faster route to putting food on the table. And we love that you can easily customize your order on the app within minutes with fresh, high-quality ingredients that go from the farm to your kitchen in less than a week and deliver right to your door. HelloFresh is a can't-beat value. There's an average savings of about 65 bucks a month. That's more money to put towards your goals, plus your whole family will love it. Right, James? Yeah, you know, what's interesting about this product is that it, it, it puts you in control. You know, you're in control of your diet. You know what you're putting in, you know, with fats and sodium and all of the other things. And generally, when it's something like this and it's like good for you and puts you in control, it, it, it doesn't taste very well. And, you know, being from Louisiana, the first rule of food is it has to taste good. This stuff actually tastes good. All right. It's not just that you you have all these choices and and you know nutritionally what's going on and you know people our age do care about that, but the, 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 it's actually delicious. And, and there's nothing to stop you from taking some you know crystal or t- Tabasco if you want to spice it up a little bit. I, I find it really doesn't need much additions. I mean, I think the chefs there do do a really good job in balancing and and you know giving you all the flavors that you like in food. It has a convenience. And it's well-priced, and it's, it's very nutritious. But on top of all that, the shit just tastes good. When a New Orleans guy says it tastes good, you know it tastes good. Go to HelloFresh.com slash WarRoom16 and use code WarRoom16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. For America's number one meal kit, remember, you go to HelloFresh.com slash WarRoom16 and use code WarRoom16 for up to 16 free meals and three gifts, or look for the link in our show notes. 
Okay, now for the questions and answers. The questions are always good, the answers, sometimes. James, start off with Leslie in Fort Collins, Colorado. Please tell her why the Democrats are already conceding the 2022 House elections. Is there no chance to hold a majority? Well, great Fort Collins. I've been there. Great Colorado, great university, Colorado State Rams. And weirdly enough, Colorado State is the foremost expert on hurricane predictions and have been for a long, long time. And I, I, it's one of these kind of questions that how did that happen? You know, because uh, hurricanes and, you know, Colorado's got enough problems with, you know, wildfires and shootings and God knows what not. But it just so happens that the foremost predictors of hurricane season are located in Colorado State and everybody in Louisiana breathlessly awaits their predictions What people have come to appreciate as being pretty in, Unfortunately, in many instances, pretty damn reliable. I, 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 and your predictions on your question. Right. It's just, just one of those things that you, you know, you expect the University of Miami or Tulane to be experts in this. You wouldn't think Colorado State, but that it didn't turn out that way. So congratulations to a great part of the world. I, I think there's some, I, I wouldn't call it optimism, but I'm starting to hear from the gallows, well, you know what? They might maybe the governor's going to pardon us, and, and you know we were the, the, the redistricting stuff is now. Well, we thought it was going to be terrible. Maybe it wasn't all that terrible, right? And you know we we got a lot of football left to play here. We're going to find out a lot about this January the sixth. And if you look at the polling, it's not we're not an evenly divided country. More by pretty good majority, people are pretty pissed off about this. And, of, of course, the, the great supply chain empty shelf disruption turned out to be the great bullshit story of all time. And the economy is rolling. So, look, it's an uphill fight. I'm not sitting here telling you I think we're going to do it. But I, I think most people are saying, you know what, maybe it's just not well, – maybe we're just not doomed yet. And I'm hearing more and more of that. And we got a very favorable well, Senate map. We just glummed yeah. the band. You mentioned more it's football. We're going to get to the Senate in a minute, James. You, you, you mentioned more football. One question we can't get to, because Dave in Manhattan, Kansas, oh, uh, proposed uh, he proposed a friendly wager with you uh, on the Texas Bowl, LSU against Kansas State. And, of course, the problem is that the game has already been held. But his, his stakes were that the winner would get a tour of the loser's town with lunch at the best local joint. So he's not going to get a New Orleans uh, tour. But, James, if they play again and the Tigers come back and beat Kansas State, you'll get a chance to get a tour of Manhattan, Kansas. All right. I'll, I'll take that. I, I think Bill Snyder is one of the greatest football coaches in history. He's not the coach know, now, is he? Didn't he, he was. I mean, yeah. he was. Yeah, he, yeah, built, I mean, he built yeah. a program. Yeah, and, and they were they yeah. were good. And I'm not, you know, I don't want excuses. We had 38 scholarship players, but I am all an excuse. But it, it, all I, right, there's nobody down here. And congratulations to the Wildcats, by the way. And we both wear purple. We're both state universities, and, and, and that's great. And I like Kansas State, but uh, but, but the, the mood in Baton Rouge is. Pretty good concerning the Well, Dave's mood is not great today, even though they won because he lost his tour of, uh, of, uh, of New Orleans. But in any event, John from Sea Ranch, California. We've oh. got several Sea Ranch, California That's about Camp Pendleton. I've been there. Uh, sea Ranch. Yeah. He says, what's the deal with Cyrus Vance's resignation? Is he leaving because he can't convict the former guy? Is a criminal going to slither out? No, John. He's leaving because he didn't run for re-election uh, and somebody else was elected. His, tour, his, his term ended December 31st. Uh, 
I, I think his departure has no impact at all on whether they're going to bring action against Trump or not. I still think they will. But uh, and I think the criminal is not going to be able to slither out. But, you know, uh, that's just a judgment at this time. Right. I think that Sea Ranch, I, I, I know, I know there's, there's a Sea Ranch Lakes that's uh, it, it's either in San Diego County or uh, Orange County. It's probably in San Diego County. Uh, I, I think it's one of the most gorgeous uh, places in the world. Uh, I, people that listen to the show know this is my view. This was a massive criminal act. And the institution that is designed to deal with criminality is the United States Department of Justice. I would remind people it was only started under the President U.S. Grant, and its purpose was to break up the Ku Klux Klan. And it exists for one reason and one reason only, and that is to enforce the laws of the United States. These laws have been massively broken. Well, and that's the Trump Organization uh, in New again, York. This is a lot the, of different things. In other words, Washington, you know, he was not a newcomer to criminality no, he when, was, uh, he's when a, he got he's to Washington. He's a career criminal, but it culminated right. on, on, on tomorrow, a year from tomorrow. Yeah. Or I guess today or Hey, Paul it. in Madison, Wisconsin, ask you, James, who are the five most deserving viable U.S. Senate candidates for the fall election? Good question. Val Demings? They have a lot, okay? Just some of my... Favorites, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, Val Demings in Florida, Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania, Tim Ryan in Ohio. We got some we, we got some good people out there, and I think we're going to recruit some better people. You're getting some good, vigorous young Democrats that are saying, screw it, I'm going for it now. And yep. I, I think on, on, on multiple fronts, we're going we're gonna to see that. We're going to see – we're going to have uh, – we got just this, this – this, Guy in Louisiana, you know, it's a tough seat, but but he's a Top Gun pilot, Naval Academy graduate, grew up on a sugarcane farm in Avalos Parish. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, we've got good people that are coming up in this party that 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 are, are putting themselves out there, and you know, I don't know, but maybe good things will happen. Well, and one uh, great advantage that Demings uh, and Beasley and Tim Ryan all have is that, that they've got the nomination. They don't have any serious competition. Right, so, Paul, out there in Madison, Wisconsin, if you can clear the field yeah. for a strong candidate and if a Connor Lamb uh, type can win in Pennsylvania, uh, then I think you got your five candidates. You're damn right. I mean, it, and uh, those Wisconsin Democrats, they got to clear the field and we, we just got to win this. But I, I, I still think electability is the biggest issue to Democrats. I really think they're, they're willing to give up 20% of ideology for 60% electability. That was clearly true in 2020, and I think that remains the case, and I'm, I'm happy about that. That would be really important in some of those Senate um, uh, contests, the primaries. We got a question from Maria in Louisville and Jerry in Littleton, uh, Colorado, almost the same. Uh, and they they both ask how Democrats can win back police officers and first responders. Would giving them raises help? What else can Democrats do? First of all, stop talking about silly stuff like defund the police and understand that basically you are much more the real law and order party than the phony Republican case. And you got to make that case. You can't just say, oh, we're against defunding the police. It's got to be more than that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, if you can pass a bill that somehow gives more money to first responders and police uh, or gives money to communities through that, that's fine. But first of all, it's a matter of, 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 of not just communication but culture. 
And um, I, there's no reason that most police officers should be, um, uh, should be right-wing Trumpites. Well, first of all, law enforcement is not a monolithic profession. You're right. They're, they're, they're much fewer Democrats. But remember this about law enforcement. They are public employees, right? They, they have public salaries. They have public retirement. They have public health care. They have all of this. And the Republican Party has been at war with public employees since, since God knows when. The second thing is there's increasingly – they're not – there's an increasingly number of non-white police officers everywhere, not just, not, not just blacks and uh, Hispanics, but Asians and women and everything else. I mean they're they, they starting to and they should reflect society as a whole. And we can't start with the premise that it's basically a rotten culture that has a, a few good people. It's actually got a lot of good people with some bad ones that we can ferret out. But but I don't think we need to start from the fact that we're doomed with, with people who, who are in the public safety sector of our country. I don't think that's the case at all. And we should do more events than that. That's why I like when you have some veterans and, and, and people like that. I, I think most people, you know, feel like they may, they're going to need the police. That They obviously have questions about some of the practices. But but we got to bend in and, and, and campaign hard and not let these these big mouths of vapid people, you know, control our messaging and our image to people. So it's a, it's a good question. Probably hey, Louisville, I, that Muhammad Ali Center in Louisville is one of the five I best agree. museums in the United States. Yeah. Well, I agree, and I think I, I would say to both uh, both those questioners that I'll, a personal, a family plug rather, my wife Judy Woodruff of the PBS NewsHour did an interview the other night uh, with a woman who was the partner of one of the police officers who was killed in the January 6th uh, riot, one of, the, one of the police officers. And look at that interview and look at what she says about the police and about Trump uh, and about these people because it really is instructive. That's a, admittedly a personal plug, but I think it's, uh, I think it's one worth seeing. Uh, James David in Livingston, New Jersey, uh, says uh, he raised the possibility of how about Garland appointing a special prosecutor? I think he's saying for the high-level January 6th um, perpetrators. Well, uh, thank you, David. I've been in Livingston many times. A very, very, very nice town. New Jersey is – I haven't dealt with Governor Phil Murphy in, in, in December, and when I worked in New Jersey, people said, God, it's an ugly place. You don't understand. New Jersey is one of the prettiest states in the eastern United States. I mean, it, it, it's gorgeous. It's Everybody state. lands at the Newark Airport, you know, and thinks that – or goes up 95 and thinks that Elizabeth is the, the center of New Jersey. It's, it's really a t terrific uh, state. Uh, I, I'm not for special counsel. Uh, the president of the United States is appointed attorney general. He's a highly qualified person. It was the greatest crime maybe in American history. The, the reason the Justice Department exists is to enforce crime. I hope this attorney general realizes that, and I think he has the legal skill to do something about this. And I'm like every, every other American, I'm waiting to see where he is. Now, people will say, well, you know, he's working below the waterline, and he's doing all these terrific things. Well, all right, let's give him a chance. I, 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 well, I don't have any doubt that he knows that. We know that he knows that, right. and they have they have prosecuted, I think, as many as 800 people. I wouldn't rule out the idea of a special counsel 
uh, for certain categories of, of, of people to be prosecuted because they're all going to be Trumpites. Uh, you know, maybe you do it through regular order, but I wouldn't rule uh, it out. I think that, uh, you know, Barr, Barr did it in some really specious ways. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a weapon that you shouldn't, you shouldn't dismiss. Well, we're going to disagree on that because we have, we support an entire Department of Justice that's full of professionals. We have, what, what at, on the surface, which is an eminently qualified attorney general, uh, that's our job. Do it. Yeah, well, it also, public credibility matters, uh, I, too, in a polarized if we, society. If we but, can't you know, we'll, rely we'll, on a Department of Justice and we can't have faith in that, to keep us safe, then the whole fucking game is over. All right? Well, I, I, know, I just, this is one of these things I, yeah. that I just, like, that's your job. You were put there. You have career people. You don't need to off it. That's, that's the job you have. Get her done. Well, look, of course it is. I mean, obviously, everybody believes that, except there, there is public, uh, public perceptions matter. And, James, I wasn't encouraged by some of those polls that you were encouraged by, by. In fact, what it said is, at least the Marist poll, that the majority of Americans who think Trump was responsible for what happened to Capitol has actually dropped uh, uh, over the last year, which is a stunning uh, uh, revelation. It really is. So anyway, we'll, 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 we'll get back to that. Let's, let's go to Maureen in Evergreen, Colorado, who says she's 25 years old. She believes in a lot of what progressives propose, but she can't stand that they're not getting it done. She says, you both note that Nancy Pelosi may be the greatest speaker of all time. Can you explain? I like her, but why? I want a better understanding of why. Nancy Pelosi is, first of all, the charming Nancy Pelosi that you sometimes see. She's a woman of really exquisite charm. She is also Nancy D'Alessandro. She grew up in Baltimore. Her, her, her daddy and her brother were mayors of of, of that city. She is one tough politician. Rahm Emanuel told me once she's the only politician who ever intimidated him. It's not easy to intimidate Rahm Emanuel. And she's got great political instincts and she knows how to count. Uh, she is the best speaker of our lifetime. She's delivered. She delivered the Affordable Health Care Act for Barack Obama. She staved off Donald Trump while she was in the minority. Uh, she's delivered every single piece of legislation they wanted this time with a slim majority. People talk about how tough it is for Schumer at 50-50. It's just about as tough for Nancy Pelosi with only a four-seat margin, and, and she does it every time. She is a fabulous speaker, Maureen. Well, I, I agree with you vehemently on Nancy Pelosi as I disagree with you on a special counsel, which is pretty profound. So I, I don't have well, anything we, we, to yeah, well, let's, let's, let's stay on Pelosi. We're not going <laughs> to yeah, we're not gonna, we're not gonna yeah, agree yeah, on a yeah, special yeah. No, You want to go on Pelosi? You just agree on Pelosi, I, I right? agree totally. I don't just okay, agree. I, I, I would add right. more, but I, I, I'm going to be humble enough to say you did a great job. I, I can't. My, <laughs> my admiration for her is profound and deep. Yeah, my only worry is what happens yeah, after too, Pelosi. But, but anyway. You know what the golf said, huh? Um, Graveyards yeah, are full yeah, of yeah, exactly. people. Yeah, but in this case, uh, not, you know, it may be, maybe the golf never met Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> right. Um, this is a great final question. David in Madison, Georgia. He said, James, he sees your network television shows, and on this show, and you always bring passion, which he likes. He wants to know how difficult is it for you to avoid cursing during those TV <laughs> interviews? How do you, do it? you know, 
I, thank you for the question. Uh, uh, Madison's a, 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 actually a great place. You know, I, I've been, I guess I look back on my career, I've been in public eye since the early 90s, and I, I've never had to apologize to anybody. I don't think. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. Before I go on TV, I, I always just say, don't say fuck. <laughs> it goes through my mind. <laughs> I'm aware well, of it. I have that a, in this podcast. I have a defense system, <laughs> but it, it, sometimes it is when you, you know, I grew up in South Louisiana and, you know, played sports and was in the Marine Corps and I've always been in what some people would call a toxic masculine culture. I don't think it is, but, you know, uh, I don't know. So far, so good. But I can't tell you what's going to happen next week. <laughs> but stay tuned, David, yeah. and you can keep track for us and keep keep writing. And we love those letters. Keep them coming we in. Sure do. Speaking of goals, if you're a small business owner, you're busy enough as it is. If you don't have time to deal with the hassle of going to the post office, which can be a hassle, and with Stamps.com, you can skip the trip and never waste another dollar or a minute. Stamps.com lets you print official postage right from your computer so you can spend less time at the post office, more time running your business. Especially in the Zoom call area, it saved us a lot of time and energy being able to stay in the home office, and it will for you too. And for more than 20 years, Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses, saving users time, money, and stress. Stamps.com gives you access to all the post office and UPS shipping services you need right from your computer and gives you discounts you can't find anywhere else, up to 40% off USPS rates and 76% off UPS. Now, that really adds up. And all you need, James, is a computer and a standard printer, and you'll be up and running in minutes, printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send. No special supplies or equipment needed. People need to be using this service right now. Carville Inc. is using it, I hope, James. Just so you know, I grew up in a post. My daddy was the postmaster in Carville, Louisiana, as was my grandfather and my great-grandmother. So I, I know a lot about post offices, and it's kind of one of the, you know, it was good, and I love the postal service, but this is amazing. And I, I wouldn't want to go to a post office in the middle of a pandemic. That You know, you talk about five places you don't want to be. And, you know, it's just it's efficient. It, it saves money. It's convenient. It's healthy. It, it's a lot of different things. And, you know, I, th I think this is in some ways good. It's, it's a win-win-win all the way around. It just, I, don't, I don't know what's the downside of this. Nothing. It's all upside. It's not a free lunch, but it's the closest thing you're going to get to it. Save time and money this year with Stamps.com by signing up with a promo code WARROOM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale with no long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code WARROOM. That's Stamps.com, or look for the link in our show notes. Hey, now for the outrage of the week. You know, when some of us worry that a Trump resurgence would imperil democracy, usher in a dangerous authoritarianism, it's, a, it's dismissed by others as just partisan fear-mongering. 
Well, it's instructive that Donald Trump has endorsed a candidate in another country. Itself, that's unusual. More concerning is the candidate he endorsed, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, who has systematically shredded democracy there over the past decade. He's curbed political rights, packed the courts, seized control of much of the media, gerrymandered the parliament, many of the major companies are controlled by the state or his cronies, and he demagogues that immigrants are a threat to Hungary's cultural and political way of life. It's been called by some critics soft fascism, and the European Union has charged that Orban poses a systematic threat to the rule of law. He is, however, a hero to the American Trumpites like Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson. For Trump, Orban is a model of what he would do with more experience now in America if ever given another opportunity. Well, as opposed to outrage today, I'm going to rise and lift a toast to my home city of New Orleans. And in particular, it's been a great time to be a black New Orleanian and reflect on your history. Two things happened yesterday that are particular historical significance. Number one is Lawrence Brooks died at the age of 111. Okay, I never met Lawrence Brooks. You never met Lawrence Brooks, but he means mm. a lot to you and I. He was the last living World War II veteran. Died yesterday in New Orleans. On the same day that he died, Governor John Bell Edwards pardoned Homer Plessy. I mean, you, you talk about things that define America. Plessy v. Ferguson and World War II have to be some of the major historical events. And the fact that both of those have deep roots in New Orleans, which is, by the way, also the home of the World War II Museum. But both of our dads were World War II veterans. We both grew up with the war in a hat off to Lawrence Brooks and every veteran that served. And hats off to Homer Plessy and every person who got their face beat in, who protests, who marched for the right to vote, the right for public access. These two events out of my hometown make me proud. Well, they ought to, James. That's really inspiring. And, um, you know, it's a great, great, great week and a great uh, history moment uh, for the city of New Orleans uh, and America. Right. Right. And I, I thought the governor, of course, well, I, think, I think he's one of the great governors I've ever had. I thought that was a really nice touch. Because Homer Plessy's conviction was still technically on the books. So just so Homer Plessy in the case Plessy versus Ferguson, which had the hideous doctrine of separate but equal, oh. came out of him on a street call. One of the three or four worst Supreme Court decisions ever. Right. Uh, so. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carville and Al Hunt, our first show of 2022. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors, Blinkist, HelloFresh, and Stamps.com in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, it helps make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.